You know who's been to church before on Easter by who responds to that right there. Uh, happy Easter. Happy Resurrection, Resurrection Sunday. And good morning to you all. Uh, it is Easter. If you showed up this morning and you didn't know that, uh, well, welcome. Uh, anyhow, if you didn't know, this is the day we celebrate that Jesus rose from the grave. Uh, and I, it's always funny when I ask this question, but uh, because I find very few people who actually know the answer. If Jesus died on Friday and he rose on Sunday, how was it three days? And so many years I ask this, and so few people are like, ah, oh, I never thought about that. And I'm not going to tell you the answer. <laughs> so I'll leave you with that one this morning. Figure out, this is your Easter homework, is figure out what, what's going on there. Uh, there. There's nothing inaccurate, I'll tell you that. I'll give you the hint. It's not inaccurate. Uh, there's no mistake. Uh, the Bible is true. Um, so now you just got to figure out why. How that's possible. Um, I know, sorry, you have homework. You have to scream about it. Uh, I love, I love Easter. I love the whole celebration of the weekend. Uh, like I kind of mentioned earlier, we started off uh, our Easter weekend with Tenebrae, which if you don't know what Tenebrae is, it's a medieval service. It's very uh, old-fashioned, very uh, stoic kind of service, and I enjoy that because it really, uh, sometimes we can just get kind of caught too much up in the resurrection, and we kind of skip over the death part of Easter, and that's a big deal. Uh, the death of Jesus on Friday is a huge deal for us as believers, and sometimes we just kind of skip right over that. So we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, but have you ever asked yourself why Jesus rose from the grave and came back here? This was not His home. Matter of fact, He'd only walked the earth for about 30 years or so, 33 years. So why did He come back here? I'm a person I like to ask, I ask a lot of questions. So I ask myself uh, weird questions sometimes when I'm reading the Bible, and that's one of the ones that kind of pops up for me. Like, okay, he came from heaven, he spent 33 years here on earth, he died, and he rose again, but he didn't have to come back here to rise again. So why did he come back to earth? What was, what's the deal there? In regards to salvation, which was why Jesus came, he, Jesus had to die. Friday had to happen. You cannot have salvation without the sacrifice. So Friday was absolutely necessary because all the sin of humanity had to be placed on Jesus' shoulders. He had to die as the perfect sacrifice. But rising again, that's not part of salvation. That wasn't necessary to secure salvation for mankind. It's almost like God had more in plan for us than to just be saved. It's almost like that's actually just the beginning, not the goalpost. Some of you, hopefully, uh, aren't in a marriage where uh, your spouse decided that marriage was the goalpost, that, that, that was the goal line, uh, that the, the goal was to get married and then afterward they just kind of gave up. Uh, I hope you don't have that kind of marriage because that's not fun. Uh, if you are somebody who's going to get married, uh, you don't want to find somebody who thinks marriage is the goal. Uh, that's the beginning of a journey. Uh, those of you that are married uh, realize, uh, I know my wife and I realized pretty quickly, we're pretty selfish. Well, as soon as we got married, we realized, I really liked my life. I mean, we were both 28, am I right, 28 when we got married, so, uh, and 29, 
Were we 29? Okay. We're 28 when we met, 29 when we got married. Uh, so we had, we'd lived independently for a long time, and we, we realized, wow, we're pretty selfish people. Like, we really enjoyed kind of our own space, our own thing. Uh, so we had to figure this whole thing out. If we viewed marriage as the goal, then you just kind of coast the rest of your life. I know people who have been in marriages like that. They usually don't last long because nobody wants that. And yet, that's what we offer to Jesus too often. We say, okay, salvation, that's the goal. That's, that's what I'm working toward. And, and we start a relationship with Jesus, and we go, okay, good. Man, I got there. And Jesus is just telling us, man, that's just the beginning. Because for him to rise again was him showing salvation wasn't it. That, that wasn't the goal. That wasn't the, the whole reason he came. There was more. It wasn't just so we didn't go to hell. It was so that we could live a life of abundance, and not abundance by the world's standard, but by His standard. It's almost as if Jesus rose on purpose for a purpose. But what was that purpose? Well, that's what we're going to discuss today. Uh, Like we already mentioned, for salvation, Jesus had to die. You can't have salvation without the cross. It just doesn't work. Sin needed paid, and we couldn't do that on our own. We could not achieve perfection on our own. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. What an amazing verse. I mean, to understand, this is basically the whole crux of the problem, is that the wages of sin is death. And if you have to pay it, guess what that means? Not just physical death, but spiritual death. That means eternal separation from God. That's what happens when we sin one time. And I, I acknowledge that's a hard thought to, to get around because we're scorecard people. We all do it, whether it's with our spouse or with our family or with our friends. We keep score. We like to, you know, hey, I, I've paid for lunch more than you have. It's your turn to pay. Or I've done more good things for you, spouse, than you've done for me. Or I, I've done this more than you've done. And I've, I put the kids to bed more. I've taken the garbage out more. We keep score because it's just part of our nature. And so we do the same thing with God. We say, well, I've done a lot of good things, God. Uh, I, think I'm, I think I'm in the positive And somehow we've created this theology that somewhere along the line, God said, well, as long as you've got more good things and bad things, then you can go to heaven. And it's just not the case. And I know I've talked about this before, but my favorite illustration, because uh, I'm a weird person, uh, was when I had a youth group, and we took a big jug of water, uh, one of those five-gallon ones you put on the the water coolers, and uh, it wasn't what I said it was, um, but they didn't know that. Um, I told them I had a, a little rabbit dropping, and I uh, put it in that big five-gallon jug of water, and I said, all right, now who wants a drink? Shockingly, nobody said. Now, I was happy there wasn't a kid like me in my youth group because I would have done it just to spite the youth pastor, uh, and I would have suffered through it, but nobody did. And I said, well, why? I mean, when we're talking mathematically, I mean, th- there's this, that little uh, uh, piece of dropping is so much smaller than the rest of it. I mean, uh, you're talking 99.9% pure that water is. Uh, just a, a tiny, maybe 0.1% impure. And it was to help them understand, just, just because we think we're pure does not make us pure. No, none of us here can probably say, well, I'm 99.9% good, holy and, and perfect. There's that 0.1%. I, you know, every now and then I do something bad. Most of us would agree, at best, we're flirting with 50-50, you know, if we're a really good person. Like, today, I'm on the wrong side of 50. Tomorrow, I'm going to do better. I am Jesus, I promise, and that's kind of the life. And for some reason, 
we decided in our own mind that's what salvation's all about. There's nothing to base it on. I promise you, I've read the Bible a few times. It's not in there. Nowhere does God indicate that to go to heaven is some kind of balance scheme, that as long as you know, the scales weigh out in your favor at the end of life, that heaven is yours. You cannot enter heaven with sin. That's just how it goes. That's, that's how it is. It cannot ha- happen. Heaven is a place of perfection and holiness, and sin cannot enter it. So if sin is still on your account, you cannot enter. That's all there is to it. There's no way around that. So in order for us to enter heaven, God had to step in. He had to do something because he's the only one that could do something about it. Because as far as I know, anybody here got, you know, anybody know how to get sin out of your soul? Okay, I know we have some people who are really good at like getting blood out of clothes or like grape juice out of things, but nobody here knows how to get sin out of your soul, so we're in a pickle. Uh, God, somebody needs to step in that knows how to deal with sin, and none of us do, but God did. And so we read both the problem and the solution in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 26. It says, for everyone has sinned. Anybody here disagree with that statement? No, we've all sinned. Okay, we're on the same page. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed His life, shedding His blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in his present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. And if you don't know anything about me, I like to argue. And so I've had this argument so many times with people who just disagree that, well, God would never send anybody to hell. A God who is not just is not God. And so just imagine this circumstance. Uh, You are, uh, whoever it is that you love the most in, in, in your world, a drunk driver hits them, kills them. And then a judge stands before them and says, man, you know, in our state, the penalty for this is death, so... I just don't like that. You can go free. Now, they're completely guilty. Everybody acknowledges it. Even the person themselves acknowledges, I was guilty. I did that. I knowingly entered my car, and I was drunk, and then I hit them and killed them. And the judge just says, ah, the penalty's uh, it's just too rough. You just go ahead. Just, you know, go live your life. Try, try to be good. You know, try to do better. I don't think any of us would be okay with that. Why? Because it's not just. And God is a just and a fair God. And so he must hold us accountable for what is on our, what we're in debt to. And so when we sin, it is on our account. There's nothing we can do to erase it. We can't get rid of it. And so what he did, it's, it's literally like this. It's as, as if the judge were to condemn that drunk driver and say, you are guilty, the penalty is death. And then he steps off of his podium and he says, but I'm going to pay your debt. I will offer my life for yours. A life is required, and I give mine. That's literally what God did for us. He said, I can't change the fact that uh, death is required because it's sin. Because you broke the laws of God, death is required. But I'm going to pay your debt. 
Now, most of us here are probably not foolish enough to say, you know what? Nah, I'm good. I don't want that. Somebody was willing to, to offer their life in place of ours. I'm pretty sure none of us would say no to that. And yet, people will still tell God that he is unjust, that he is unfair and unloving because they reject that simple gift. Because they say, no, you know what? I, I choose not to believe that you're willing to do that. And so I say, no. And so there are people who won't enter heaven, who will enter hell, not because God is unfair, not because God is not loving, but simply because they said no to his free gift. He stepped from his judgment seat and said, I will take the penalty that is required here. And yet there will be people who say no. Nobody would then look at that judge and say, man, you are cold and heartless. Nobody would do that. They would acknowledge the tremendous love and sacrifice that judge was willing to give that condemned person who killed somebody because of their own choices and actions, and yet the judge was willing to step in and take that penalty. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glorious standard. Uh, For a long time, unfortunately, uh, in the church, uh, the priests, especially in the Catholic church, and uh, pastors even, they, they tried to claim like, well, I'm holy and I'm better. And I think at one point, priests did try to claim that they were like perfect or something. And Boy, were they wrong, Uh, because I'm no better than anybody else. Nobody that stands and and preaches the Word of God is perfect and without sin. We all have sinned, every single one of us, because the standard is perfect holiness. And I promise you, ask my wife, I don't always hit that standard. At least one day a week, I I miss it, right? Just once. Uh, In order for us to be made right in God's sight, Jesus stepped in as the perfect sacrifice, and the weight of all sin was laid on him. Blood needed to be spilled to pay for sin because the injustice of sin has to be paid with life. Remember the verse we just read, the wages of sin is death. So Jesus offered his own blood on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 9 to 14. Nope, I have it right. I have it wrong on the slide. Uh, It says, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. We talk about this a lot, especially when we do uh, communion, the the reality that uh, there was always... uh, sacrifice in the Jewish system, and they would offer goats and, and, and bulls and, and lambs and all of these things, but it was more of a covering. It, would, it was to cleanse them from ceremonial impurity, Romans, or Hebrews chapter 9 says. It says in verse 14, just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. So all of the sacrifices of the Jewish people up until this time were to cover ceremonial impurity, but they always knew this was a temporary thing. It always looked forward to when Jesus would come. So this is the good news. The good news is that the price has been paid, but just as our analogy of being in the courtroom you would have to say yes. 
you would have to accept because the burden of the weight of your sin, the, the, the cost is on you and the judge can't force you to allow him to take your penalty. And so though it's the, the payment has been offered, though you don't actually owe anything, if we were to continue to reject that offer, then we would still have to pay the price, which is death. The good news is you don't need to keep trying to earn salvation. This idea that you have to be a really good person, that you have to stop doing this, stop doing that, you have to check all these boxes, you, you can't do these things, you can't smoke, you can't drink, you can't go to dances, you can't go to movies, all the things that the, you know, the church used to say you have to do, uh, it's, it's all not true. None of that's true for salvation. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to stop doing anything for salvation. That's the beautiful part of it. It's a free gift. We literally just have to look at Jesus and say, yes, I believe that what you say is true. I have a debt. I cannot pay it. Doesn't matter how much I work at it, I don't know how to get sin out of my soul. And so I will take payment from the only person who is qualified to pay this, and that's Jesus. As the Romans passage said, all we need to do now is believe that Jesus has done for all of this for us to be made right with God. It's a belief. That's the, one of the huge differences between Christianity and every other religion in the world. They're all works-based. Most of them are works-based. You have to do all this stuff. You have to you know, jump through all these hoops. You have to do all this stuff. And in some of them, it's like you're still not guaranteed it was one of the things I learned when I was uh, learning a lot uh, about the Muslim faith is, you know, you can do all, all that, you, uh, he, that their religion requires of you, hit every box, check everything, cross every T, dot every I, and at the end of the day, if he doesn't like you, oh well. There's no security there. There's no hope. And yet Jesus says, all you have to do is believe. It's really that simple. And yet, what has the enemy done? He's created this idea in, in people's hearts in the world that says, oh, God, is, he's this evil guy who sends people to hell, and he, you know, he hates people. He just doesn't love people because there's still you know, injustices in the world, and, and the fact that people would go to hell tells me that there cannot be a God. Again, with the analogy of the judge, nobody would think that judge was unloving because he is willing to pay our debt. Later in Romans, Paul explains exactly what this looks like to have faith in Christ. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 10. It says, If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One of the best verses in the entire Bible. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. There will be so many people who don't go to heaven because of their own pride, because they feel like they have to earn it. Because if I don't earn it, it's not mine, because it's a free gift. Now, I promise you, if you were that drunk driver in the analogy, you'd hit the floor weeping when you realize that death was your penalty and there was somebody willing to pay that debt for you. The humbling reality that we owed a debt we could not pay, except with our death, was the only payment we could achieve to satisfy the requirement of our sin. And yet somebody's willing to step in and take that penalty for us. That's why salvation is this humbling thing. We can't stand there and say, oh, look how great I am. 
I'm so wonderful. The judge was willing to give himself for me. In that moment, we realize this has nothing to do with me. This has to do with the love of God, the love of that judge, the heart he has for me that he'd be willing to pay my debt. So that's it. Salvation can really be summed up with believing and confessing. Believing Jesus is who he said he is. Confessing our sin and confessing our faith in him. That's Christianity. It's really that simple. It doesn't require all these hoops. It doesn't require you know, a certain amount of church attendance. You don't have to give the church a penny. That's not what it's about. We've made it about that in the past, and that's part of the problem. We've made it about you've got to dress the part, you've got to look the part, you've got to act the part. Man, I know people who know Jesus as their Savior and are way more messed up than some other people who don't know Jesus but look the part. It's brokenness in the face of what Jesus has done. That's what's important. I know people who know Jesus as their Savior and still mess up bad from time to time. Just because you know him doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. But it does mean you have a relationship. Just because my wife and I have a relationship and we've been working on it doesn't mean I'm not going to mess it up. doesn't mean I'm not going to do something that's going to make her angry or I'm, going to, I'm not going to be a jerk at times. It's going to happen. I'm a human and I'm a guy, so we're not that bright. We do the wrong thing sometimes. But it doesn't mean we just give up on it and say, oh, well, I must not have a relationship with my wife because I just did something wrong. I just acted in an unloving way, so I must not love her. That's not how it goes. And yet, church, it's kind of how we've treated people with their relationship with God. We say, oh, I don't know if they, they have a relationship with God because I, I saw them smoking in the parking lot. Who cares? That's not what Jesus is about. Now, if God wants to work on that with them, that's between them and Jesus, not between you and them and Jesus. Mind your own business, deal with your own sin, and let's focus on us getting closer to Jesus. That's what it's about. Our, now, if I were to look at John and say, well, he's not a very good husband, so I, I should make sure that I tell him he's not a very good husband because that affects me and my wife. It doesn't affect me and my wife. I can talk to him about it if, if I think that's true. But I need to worry about my marriage. It's not going to fix my marriage if I yell at somebody else for them not being uh, good with their spouse. I need to worry about taking care of my spouse and I. And we need to focus on our relationship with Jesus. So what's with today? What is with Resurrection Sunday? Why do we celebrate and make such a big deal about the resurrection? Why is Friday not the biggest celebration of the year? Honestly, if I was in charge of the church calendar, it would be. Uh, Friday would be a bigger deal than Sunday. Um, I honestly think it's a bigger deal because resurrection falls on Sunday. Uh, If the death fell on Sunday, I think it would be a bigger deal. Um, We're just kind of fickle like that. But Friday really is the bigger deal, in my opinion, uh, because uh, salvation is the huge deal. The resurrection, why do we celebrate it? Why did Jesus even bother coming back to earth instead of just bypassing his creation? Because he could have, and going back to heaven, where he is from. That's his home. Why did he stop in here for 40 days before returning to heaven. I don't know if you ever thought about these, but these are the kind of questions I ask myself as I'm reading. It was necessary, remember, for Jesus to die for us to be saved, but it wasn't necessary for Jesus to come back for 40 days after his death. I mean, I could maybe even understand him popping in and saying to the disciples, like, hey, I'm still here. Uh, I'll see you guys in a couple years. You know, some of you sooner than others, but uh, see you in a little bit. I can understand that, but why? Why does he come for 40 days and spend 40 more days amongst his creation? 
Every, what he came, if, if salvation was the goal, if it was everything, then there's no purpose for him to come back because he's already got salvation covered. He paid the debt. It's done. The sacrifice has happened. So why come back? Now, I don't presume to know the mind of God, so I'm sure there are more reasons than I've come up with, but I can definitely see two big reasons why Jesus rose again and walked the earth for 40 days, to comfort his disciples and to prove his power and deity. I think there are two huge reasons. I, I, you've heard me say before, uh, if you've been around a while, uh, I, I, I firmly believe that God likes to show off because uh, he's God and he likes to show his power. He likes to let us know he, he is God. Uh, very often uh, in evangelistic settings, God will demonstrate his power in even more powerful ways um, because he likes to show off. He likes to show his power. And to me, the resurrection is the big show off of, of creation because he shows back up not in order to obtain something, but simply to show that he can do it. That's at the end of the day, that's what the resurrection is about, to show I am different than any other person who claims to be God. Anybody can claim to be God and die, but not anybody can rise from the grave. Only Jesus can do that. So you can imagine, uh, if you can put yourself back in the days of, of Jesus and his disciples, um, if, you've, if you've not watched The Chosen, you need to. You need to watch The Chosen. It's phenomenal, fantastic. And it really gives you an idea of the, the relationship that the, Jesus is creating with this group of disciples. Um, they really come to love Jesus. They spend, a lot of them, three years with Jesus, uh, and they spend significant amounts of time with him. Um, they acknowledge that there is something truly unique, special, and that he is the Messiah, the Christ. Um, they begin to get that to a degree, um, so can you imagine how traumatic the entire course of events must have been for them around Jesus' death? Jesus knew how it would affect them, and he even told them that it would happen. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 to 35, it says, On the way, Jesus told them, Tonight all of you will desert me. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there, Peter declared. Even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter. This very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. No, Peter insisted. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the other disciples vowed the same. See, this is my thing. Peter gets a bad rap because he says he's not going to deny Jesus, and then he does. We focus on Peter a lot. But I'm sorry, every other disciple said the same thing, and every other disciple did the exact same thing. They all say here, they're vowing the exact same vow of Peter, and they, they kick rocks faster than Peter did. They run off immediately. At least Peter hung around for a little bit, and was trying to see what was going on, and, and you know he gets the bad rap for denying Jesus, but they all did it, and Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew how traumatic it was, because remember Palm Sunday? We talked a, a little bit about this last week. Uh, last Sunday was, is always considered, the, the Sunday before Easter is Palm Sunday. It's when the crowds are shouting, Hosanna, 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 God save us. Remember that the majority thought that Jesus was coming to overthrow the Romans, 
and to bring about a worldly kingdom. That's what they were focused on. They really thought Jesus was going to lead an uprising. If you've ever read the book of Judges, you can get a good idea of why they thought that. Because that was one of God's plans. Um, if, you've ever been in the, if you've been in the church for like five minutes, then you've probably heard the phrase, that's not how we used to do it. And for the Jewish people, that's not how, you know, this whole Jesus movement thing was not how we used to do it. It used to be that we messed up royally, we begged God to fix it, and he sent someone to overthrow the current occupying people. And so you can understand why they thought the same thing was going to happen with Jesus. He was charismatic. He had a following. He obviously loved Jesus. He knew the Word of God. They thought, all right, Jesus is going to come. He's going to take out the Romans, and it's going to be, you know, Jerusalem will be ours again. Our, our country will be ours. So when they saw Jesus arrested and mistreated so viciously, they all deserted him because he wasn't who he thought. they thought he was. And man... If I don't see that so true still today in people's lives, the moment God isn't who we think he should be, we desert him. We say, you know what? Well, then fine. If you're not going to do what I want, if you're not going to fix all of my mistakes, if you're not going to you know, be my little genie in a bottle, then forget you, God. And we walk away. So many people will say, oh, I used to go to church, but you know, I got you know, disenfranchised. and I, 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 uh, God, you know, God disappointed me too many times. God didn't disappoint you. You just had the wrong idea of who he was. He's not a vending machine. You know, A7, get me out of my problems, doesn't work with God. We mistook him, just like the disciples did. They really thought it was going to be all about this. And Jesus is like, nah, this, this is totally new. I'm not doing that old thing we used to do. I'm doing a totally new thing. It's humility. It's sacrifice. It's dying. It's being less than this new system. See, Peter, as bold as he was, just wasn't ready to die for Jesus yet. So when Jesus rose, can you imagine the joy and the comfort that it brought his disciples? Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 to 8 says, Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the women. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come, see where his body was lying. And now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I have told you. The women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but also filled with great joy. And they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. You can imagine, they followed Jesus, he's been this big deal for them, he's been the center of their world for three years, but then he dies, and they think, oh, maybe what was supposed to happen isn't going to happen, maybe all these things, these hopes that we had, or this new kingdom aren't going to happen, but then they find out, he's risen from the dead. Now, that wasn't like a normal Sunday happening, you know, people weren't rising from the dead all the time. So this was a big deal. Obviously, something was afoot. 
God was doing something. And so while they are tremendously frightened, and I, I always point this out when we talk about Christmas, you know, it always drives me nuts when you see like the art, artistic depictions of angels and they're like these, you know, really pretty guys with like robes on and stuff. That is definitely not what angels look like because just about every time they show up, people are petrified of what they see. And the, these ladies are no different. They're petrified. Um, I do think, uh, I do, you know, just find it, interesting that uh, the guards, big old tough guards, they, they're in a dead faint, and the women are tough enough to not fall over dead, um, but they're still frightened. But just the idea that Jesus rose from the grave says it gives them great joy. Can you imagine just how much joy it gave them, but also when Jesus just pops up in the midst of his disciples? Luke chapter 24 Verses 35 to 43, it says, Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. If you don't think God has a sense of humor, you need to read this passage again. They watched him die. They saw him put in a tomb bloody, disfigured, and just gone. And his method of letting them know he's alive is literally popping up in the midst of them and saying, peace be with you. He's got a sense of humor. That's all I have to say because you know a few people peed themselves in that moment (laughs) because a guy just popping up in the midst of you who you watched die who you were kind of sure was God, but you weren't really sure, especially once he died, you started to doubt yourself, and he's just there in your midst and says, peace be with you. Verse 37. But the whole group was startled, obviously, and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened? He asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I am not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Still they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. Then he asked them, do you have anything here to eat now? Again, this is a sense of humor here. He just pops up. Their whole world has changed. Reality itself is no longer reality because people just don't pop up in the middle of people and they don't rise from the dead. Jesus has just flipped everything they know upside down. He says, hey, you guys got anything to eat here? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it as they watched. Now, I think this obviously highlights Jesus' sense of humor because if you don't know, the theology behind this, Jesus is in his glorified body. He has no need to eat. And I believe this is Jesus just trying to kind of put him at peace because, you know, uh, it's hard to be intimidated by somebody that's, you know, gnawing on a, a piece of fish. So he lets him know he's real, he's physical, he makes it very clear, I'm not a ghost. He's, gotta let, he's letting them and their brains catch up with what is happening right now. God has risen from the grave. Everything is different now. And if you follow these disciples' lives, they are never the same again. I believe he's got a sense of humor, but he also knows how to get things done. And when he shows up in this method, when he startles the daylights out of them and shows them beyond a shadow of a doubt, he is alive. He wasn't some weird ghostly figure because he ate a meal right in front of him. 
He showed them his hands and his feet, which he allowed, obviously, the scars to remain from his crucifixion to show them, I'm alive, but I'm also God. That's how I'm risen from the grave. All of their hope and trust had been placed in Jesus. Then they watched him taken away and murdered in the most humiliating and horrifying way the Romans knew how. But then he just shows up, messes with them a little bit, encourages them, and then leaves them for good with the promise of the Holy Spirit. And he tells them before he's crucified, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and I promise you it's even better than having me here. Because Jesus walking around beside them is pretty cool. But God dwelling inside them, empowering their every motion and movement is way better. After Jesus leaves for good this time, we read in Luke 24, 52, so they worshiped him and then returned to Jerusalem filled with great joy. Seeing Jesus alive and well three days after they watched him die changed the disciples for the rest of their lives. Not a single disciple turns away from Jesus. After this moment, they are locked in. And so to me, I, I always love talking about proofs of, of Jesus and the fact that, you know, because nobody who studies for like 10 minutes would deny that Jesus lived. We all know that. He obviously lived. There's historical records even outside of the Bible that know um, people who don't even believe in Jesus still know that Jesus lived. What they would disagree on is that he was God. Now you've got these disciples who have walked with him for three years, invested their whole livelihoods into who he was, watched him die, deserted him when he was arrested. Every single one, obviously Judas doesn't count because he kills himself because he was the traitor, but all of his disciples other than Judas now, they all, except one, die horrific deaths. I don't think that they would do that for somebody they knew to be a fraud. They did that because they knew he was God. Because he popped up in the middle of them and said, hey, don't be afraid. I'm God. And they knew it beyond a shadow of a doubt. And they were willing to give their lives. None of them were willing to die for Jesus the night he was arrested. But all of them were ready to die for Jesus when they knew that he was willing to die for them. And that he did die for them. It changed their world. To that very fact changed the rest of their life. Now, if salvation was the goal, then they should have just kicked back and lived the rest of their life in peace. Because now they knew that Jesus was who he said he was. They knew, obviously, they were sinners. And that's all they had to do, right? No need to change the world. No need to flip the world upside down. But that was just the beginning for the disciples. And my argument this morning for you is salvation is just the beginning for you. If you know Jesus as your Savior and you haven't changed the world, then you haven't gotten started yet because that's the goal for each and every person. This whole series uh, we called On Purpose for a Purpose. The fact that we, each and every one of us was made on purpose and for a purpose. And when Jesus rose from the grave, he did so on purpose and for a purpose because now these disciples, they're not just comforted by the fact that Jesus is alive, but they're completely certain of Jesus' deity and his power. There is no doubt in their minds. While Jesus' death 
on Friday, it proved his love and his humanity. But his resurrection proved his power and his deity. That's the difference between Friday and Sunday. Jesus wanted his disciples to not only be comforted by his life, but by his power to do literally the impossible. Because it is not possible to rise from the grave. So Jesus made it very clear. What is possible is not a hurdle that is hard for me to jump over. Jesus' display after the resurrection made it clear that not even death could match his power. Death was inevitable. They knew that. They understood that. For, for humanity, they know, and even still to this day, there are people who don't know Jesus, who believe there's nothing you can do about it, everyone's going to die, and then that's going to be it. They all knew death was inevitable. And Jesus makes it clear, man, death has no power over me. And the comfort that that brought his disciples. Jesus told us before he ascended into heaven after his 40 days, that the same power that enabled him to rise from the grave would empower us as well. Romans 8, 11 says, The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. See, there's a commonality between Jesus and all the prophets of the other religions like Buddha, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, all these guys. They all died, Jesus included. But only one thing Jesus can claim is that he is risen. It's what changes. It's what sets apart Jesus from all the rest. Is You can, might be able to find somebody that's willing to die for you but you're not going to find anybody who's willing to rise from the grave for you because they can't. They don't have power over death, and yet God does. Jesus is still alive and seated at the right hand of God. So we as believers, just like the disciples, can live our lives with confidence in the power and the deity of Christ. We get that privilege. We get to look back on this entire course of events, and we get to celebrate it, not just once a year on Easter Sunday, but we get to celebrate it every day of our lives as we live a life that shows, I believe that God is who He said He is. And I believe that just as He rose from the grave on purpose and for a purpose, that I have been created on purpose and for a purpose. So what does the resurrection mean to you? I I can talk all day up here about the resurrection and how awesome it was and the power that the resurrection has. But what does it mean to you? How has it changed your life? And I'm specifically asking about the resurrection because his death has changed some of you because now you're a believer. But what has his resurrection changed? It's one thing to be a Christian, The Friday can be our biggest deal. But unless Sunday impacts us, then we just kind of ride out the rest of our lives. We got our get-out-of-hell-free card, and we're good now. And so many people try to ride the rest of their lives out in this purposeless existence, thinking, well, Jesus, you know, he came and he died for me, and now I'm a Christian, but he really wants me to be happy. He really wants me to to do what I want to do. It's not the Bible I'm reading. He died for a purpose. And that was 
that we might be saved. But he also rose for a purpose. And that was so that we would live just as he lives, we would live in the power and the glory of Christ. And that is possible through the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit enters our life and we become literally the temple of God, if you don't know, when Jesus dies on the cross, something very powerful happens in the Holy of Holies. There's this enormous curtain uh, that separated the Holy of Holies, which was the one place that the uh, presence of God would come down once a year on the Day of Atonement. And it was the one place where God touched the earth. And the moment Jesus dies on the cross, that curtain is, that curtain is, is torn in two. And there's a reason, because no longer would he be entering that room. Instead, he'd enter people. And we would be where heaven touched earth. That was the whole goal. We were meant to be light in the darkness. And so it it always boggles my mind when church people are like, well, I've never been to a bar. Good for you. There's a lot of darkness there. Maybe you should think about it. Why would we brag about not going places where there's darkness? There's nothing. Don't pat yourself on the back for that. We should be places. Now, I'm not saying you should be in a bar. Maybe so. I know at least one of you has been called to that. You've talked to me about it. That might be a ministry spot for you. But we should be in dark places. We should go where there is darkness. Not that we participate in the darkness. But man, if all we ever do is sit in our holy huddles and all, all the light ever does is hang out with other lights, it's useless. What's the point? I don't know about you, but like if your power ever goes out, you probably don't light all your candles and put them all in a circle in one place in the house. You put them all over the house so there's light everywhere. You put them in dark places. That's what we were meant to do, to go places where people don't know Jesus and talk to them about this awesome hope. That's why he rose again. And so that we would live lives that reflect the love of God and the power and the deity of God. Salvation is an amazing thing, and I don't mean to downplay it in any way this morning, but if that's where we stop, we miss out on so much. Some of you know what it's like to live a life of purpose, to live in that place that God has designed you for, and there is nothing that compares to that. I promise you, it doesn't matter if you're making $400,000 a year. If you're not living out your purpose, It's not going to be great. But man, you can make pennies. But if you're living out God's purpose in your life, man, it is an awesome place to be. It is the abundant life that Christ talks about. That he, He came that we may have life and have it abundantly. There is something so special about living within your purpose, about understanding exactly what it means that you were created on purpose and for a purpose. Jesus rose on purpose and for a purpose. Are we going to honor that purpose by living ourselves on purpose and for a purpose? God most definitely has a purpose for you, and it is awesome. We've talked through this whole series about how each and every one of us has been gifted in special ways. God has given you gifts, talents, abilities, and they're all because he has a purpose for you. It says that he had works planned from before you were created for you to do. And God wants us to live that, not because he needs us, but because there's something so beautiful living in that place of purpose. 
And if you have questions about it, uh, <clears throat> within the next couple of weeks, we're going to start another Sunday school class. We're going to go through a, a book that's very uh, good about uh, helping us figure out exactly what is our purpose. Uh, what purpose does God have for me? And it, it'll help you kind of diagnose yourself and figure out how has God gifted me uniquely for the, the place he has me. Uh, and we'll go through your identity, your purpose, and the place that God has for you in that Sunday school class. So if you're interested, join us. Um, it starts at around 9 a.m., um, so in a couple weeks, we're going to start that class. Uh, we're going to go through <clears throat> this awesome process because I can't imagine there being something more important than for us to figure out exactly how God has designed us and then to begin to live out that purpose. And I've been a part of that journey with people in their lives, and it is this awesome thing as you watch somebody come alive and you watch them begin to engage in their purpose, and it's just this beautiful, awesome thing. We probably all know somebody who has a job that is just not their purpose. And you know that, why? Because they're so happy and cheerful? No, because they're miserable. It doesn't matter how much money they make, they're miserable. And they might stay in that job because they want the money, but it doesn't make them any happier. But you also know somebody who's doing something that they love. And you can tell because they just love it. And that's what God has designed each of us for, to live in that place of calling, that of purpose, that we would live that. And I promise you, as I've told before, uh, as I close, nothing that you have ever done has canceled your purpose. That is a lie from Satan that says, oh, well, you really messed up, so you obviously don't have a purpose anymore. Oh, you messed up. You, you, you failed God, and so you've lost your purpose. Not true. Can't be possible. Because God saw all the way to the end of your story. And he accounted for every mistake you'll ever make. Your purpose has never changed. When he called you, he took into account every bad choice you would ever make. And he made that calling based on all of the factors of our life. And so don't ever believe that you don't have a purpose. You should live just as Jesus lives, on purpose and for a purpose. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your death and your resurrection. Lord, I thank you for your death because in that, we have hope. We now, by simply accepting your gift of you taking our place, of you paying our debt, we now can enter heaven with a clean slate because you have paid our debt. And Lord, I thank you for the resurrection because now not only do we not have to spend eternity without you, but we get to live every moment of this life as if we're already in heaven because you dwell inside of us. We get to show this earth and everybody in it what it's like to be a friend of God, to be a redeemed person, to have the power of the living God within us. Lord, I pray that as we leave this place today, we would all go in the confidence of knowing that we have a relationship with you and we would begin, if we're not, living on purpose and for a purpose, knowing that is your plan for each and every person here. Lord, I pray we would celebrate your resurrection, not just today, but every day for the rest of our life would be a testament of the fact that you died and you rose again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Happy Resurrection Sunday, and have a great day.